This week on Next in Marketing, I spoke with Jonathan Halverson, Global Vice President of Consumer Experience at Monolith. John told me about how a meeting a few years ago with Amazon really shook him up, why he thinks CPG brands can blow past direct-to-consumer companies in terms of using data, and how marketers that stick with traditional channels are unlikely to see growth going forward. Let's get started. Everything we know about the media, marketing, and advertising business is being completely upended thanks to technology and data. We're talking with some of the top industry leaders as they steer their companies through constant change. Welcome to Next in Marketing, presented by AppsFlyer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Next in Marketing. My guest this week is Jonathan Halverston. He's the Global Vice President of Consumer Experience at Mondelez. Hey, Jonathan. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So I'm excited to talk to you because you're the you're the big brand guy that's going through all the changes and you have and you we John and I of course met as as is tradition we did a panel together so now we're we're best friends um, that's how the connections happen in this world but I, but I think it'd be good to just maybe just talk about your your title because you're you're vice president global of consumer experience does that mean you're the guy that makes sure that everybody's got uh, Really, really good websites or, or good branding. Do you oversee advertising spending? What, what, what does that entail? What does it not entail? Yeah, you know, when I got when I came here, I was in charge of media, digital, and data. And then two, three years ago, as the CMO and I were adding some other things to play, so I took on creative agency relationships. I took on production. It, it became a little bit weird just to put it on a business card. I'm the VP of media, digital, data, creative, production. Uh, and so ultimately, we just thought about like what was the really the center of what we were going to be doing. And we wanted to go on a real journey to move from a very paid media mindset uh, to really shifting and thinking about the consumer experience. So that does include all of those disciplines, all those centers of excellence, both at a global as well as inside the BU. So everything from what's going on with our websites to our paid media investments to how we're building earned media, our creative agency relationships, uh, the CMO holds, it makes me the throat to choke on that. Right. So let's just maybe talk about that a little bit. When you say going from a paid media um, mindset, because I, I think of like Mondelez includes brands like I think they're like I think of them as classic TV brands. They do lots of things, but you know, like Ritz and Oreo stuff that appeals to lot, you know wide swaths of the country. Were, were, were you were you were you, you guys historically focused on you know getting high reach campaigns out there and having a media focus, and then the advertising? I'm, I'm assuming the advertising wasn't secondary. But what do you mean by that shift? Yeah, I mean, I think a few things. So certainly, you know, in classic, like any classic CPG, we had a very mass market mentality. In order to grow billion-dollar brands, you're serving high number of consumers. So these are brands that are well-known, highly penetrated, high levels of awareness. And they were built very much by having one message that we shared with everyone, and we delivered that as cheaply as possible. And so ultimately, you had a very paid media mindset of how you built You, you got the Halloween Oreos are coming out. Tell everybody yeah, about them. Right? It's just like, hey, we're launching new Oreos. Run, you know, 40 GRP, 50 GRP, 60 right. GRPs of television a week, 52 weeks a year. And, and that was your classic formula to be able to grow and show everyone the exact same piece. And over time, and I credit my successor, you know, Bonin, for really pushing us into digital in a big way. And he saw the opportunity in digital. And over time, we've refined and accelerated that. So today, you know, we're a brand that's spending 55, 60% of its budgets in digital. And that's really progressive for a CPG of our size. I mean, this is a yeah. you know, 20 billion plus, you know, revenue company. Well, that that is, I think that would still surprise people um, because you're, yeah, if you told me that was, um, a, a retailer brand. Yes, of course. But yeah, I, I would still think, oh, oh, they're TV heavy. 
even though they've shifted strategically, TV is expensive, but that, and I, and I, I think I would also maybe assume, oh, you're spending 50, 60% of your budget on digital. That must mean you're just, you're using digital to, 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 uh, replace television. But I'm, I'm guessing that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't think that you, we don't use it as a replacement for television. I think when you have that mindset of replacing television, again, you start getting into this mass mindset. Right, let's get the GRPs in another way, right? Yeah, and just being really, seeing consumers as a very homogeneous group. And if you really look at it, consumers are more weird. Uh, So if you think back, like, you know, decades ago, consumers were a lot more similar. You look at what was weird in the 60s or 70s. 80s and 90s, and then you look at what's weird today, I think ultimately you see the world has become more diverse and it's become Mm -hmm. less homogeneous. And that ultimately creates big opportunities for brands to be more relevant the more targeted they are. So digital for us is not a replacement for television. I think it's become our primary lever for brand building for a lot of our markets. And so we have markets where we're as high as 80, 90% digital. We have some markets on the low side where we're in the 40s, but I would think progressively, BU by BU, market by market, uh, you'll see us be in the top quartile, certainly in our category, if not the total industry uh, for digital spend. And I want to get into that specific, like more specifically what that looks like. Um, but I, maybe I think there's a couple of obvious questions for you, you know, as, as Mr. Package Goods, you're representing all the big changes we're talking about. Um, so the, the, I guess the first one is the obvious one where everyone's, uh, this has been going on for a couple of years now. How do you guys play in the you know, we're, we're sort of obsessed with direct to consumer brands and they've, they, they're, that's where you want to be right now in marketing. You're, 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 you're a brand that has, you started on Instagram and you, um, you have a base of users, you know, everything about them. And that's, that's always, that's the perception is that's really hard for CPGs. And how do you get people to share their personal information or become part of, part of their lives when they just buy them in the stores, you know, what's going on. Obviously you've done it. You've taken a lot of steps to change that, but can you maybe talk about some of the things you've done in there with, with Oreos and identity or other things you're trying? Yeah. I mean, I think first of all, I think you can, there's a differentiation. I don't think you can lump all CPG brands together. And fortunately right. I sit over a very advantaged portfolio from this perspective in that these are brands that are taste of a nation. You grew up with these brands and there's a big love. I mean, Oreo is certainly one of the most, love brands around the world and certainly in the US. And so that creates a really good pull. And so whenever we do something with Oreo or Cadbury or any of our local jewels, Ritz, Triscuit, you know, we find that ultimately if we create a positive consumer experience, we get a, we can create a good value exchange for consumer data. And so ultimately as a CPG company with our portfolio, we can build large profiles on consumer data Our biggest challenge is really figuring about how you're going to operationalize it because I think there's becomes a lot of use cases and that can be, you know, what are we going to do first or how is this going to work and how are we going to operationalize it? Making that work in a business that has so many brands is usually actually the big challenge because you have a lot of different use cases. You have hundreds of brands that could do different things. So how are you going to prioritize your resources becomes a big challenge. I think the second thing you do is, You just have to make it a mantra. So you can create value exchanges where consumers will give you their data, but then it's also like making sure that's part of our mindset every time we build a campaign. And then you have a responsibility. So now the consumer has given me their data and they've given me this opportunity to contact them and follow up and serve more personalized. How are you going to pay that off? You know, I I literally think that as soon as we collect a consumer's data, we have this big responsibility to them 
Like, what does that first message look like? You know, so you've signed up, you've given right. your information to Oreo. You got to start you're off on a good foot there, or you're like, right. So, get, do you have any good examples of that? Because I think, uh, yeah, people are going to assume. Okay, well, I'll sign up for you know this retailer's email. Who I, I like personalization, but what do I, what do I want to give Oreo my information or Ritz? Like, how do you how do you approach that? How do you make that value exchange clear and open that door? I think there's a few things. So, like easy ways with these get collected. I mean, we've done a lot of flavor contests, which we're classically famous for. It's like, what flavor of Oreos would you like us to see, or what flavor of Cadbury would you like us to see? And so ultimately that creates a cycle of constant communication. And so a lot of times I think the UK business has probably done the best with this and they have a a really smart leader who's just been super focused on it. And so we think about not only new product launches, what are the new flavors? What are the, you know, essence, how can we create just special content? We only send to them around uh, different, you know, promotions we're doing, different activities we're doing. When we're launching, you know, Cadbury eggs, how do we make those available? You know, are there going to be products we ship to them in advance and ultimately treat our Cadbury core consumers like influencers? So there's a lot of great stuff, but I I think you're still seeing brands scratch the surface. I think because I I still look at CRM and I still feel it feels a little too salesy. And I don't know if we've totally connected that to brand campaign ideas and bigger things we're doing. And again, our UK team being an exception, we have deals with Premier League. We do a lot of activations with teams. And so they've done a really good job of taking that content into this space. But there's a huge ceiling uh, because no one just needs another email. And I think right. we've all been barraged with those yeah. 10% off, not 20% off. That, that's not the model. Do, do you think, um, this is a little, a little bit of a tangent, but do you, do you think we get a little bit too obsessed with it, mar- marketing today is, is you have personal data or you're dead. Like, is it like, can, can a brand th- that just appeals to the masses and sells stuff and doesn't actually have to attribute every single user to every, to a bit of data, can they, can they survive? Do we, do we get too, too crazy with that notion? I think that data becomes a, a competitive advantage in a lot of different areas. Like I think machine learning is a real source of advantage. So, I mean, I, I run towards this in a big way. Uh, I think where the promise is is sometimes we overpromise it or we get over allured with it. Like, oh, wouldn't it be amazing if we can just serve an ad to someone right as they're outside the 7-Eleven? So I think digital yeah. is definitely guilty of overpromising what it can do today. But I think if you're not building those relationships with retailers to be able to have closed loop or you're not building relationships to consumers to understand them more, you're missing out. I mean, I think... This is how I zoom back and think about it. Like what, what caused brands to grow the last decade, right? You had brands that had purpose, brands that shifted into digital and brands that ultimately integrated creative and media. And if you did those three things, well, you were rewarded with outsized growth. I think that the things that ultimately win the next decade, one is commerce. So how do you create different business models? Like why I get excited about DTC is not so much from the data, but I think it's important. The most successful businesses have multiple business models. Yep. I think it's interesting that retailers are becoming media companies. I think it's yes. interesting when people have subscription businesses. I applaud when people like Pepsi. Publishers or e commerce now. Yeah, so commerce is one. The second one is identity. And I think identity really matters and determines who wins and loses. And it's there's a difference between data and identity. So. Yep. How well do you really know your consumer? And that not just like 
from a demographic statistics perspective, but really what speaks to their heart and their empathy. And as we've gone on our journey in personalization, we've learned to understand the difference between having data and a consumer giving us data and us understanding their identity. And they're two very different things. One is a on this journey to identity, but identity being the higher order principle. And the third thing I think is you have to be really human. And I think that's what differentiates it because as you build consumer experiences, there is this downward pressure of commoditization because you are ultimately judged against the last best experience you had, regardless of yep. category. And so when someone sees something on Spotify or from Nike, they go, why can't Oreo do that? Why can't it be like that? And so I think the humanity to it is what is you fight to keep the commoditization up and keep it different. And a perfect example of a category with the lack thereof is I look at the airlines and all of those app experiences are the same. It lacks humanity. Yes, they understand yep. commerce. Yes, they have good ecosystems. Yeah, they're very yes, cookie they cutter functional, identity, right. But they, there's no humanity and therefore commoditization. So humanity yep. is how you fight against commoditization. So I think identity, super important. DTCs have a clear track to try and get them, but they have their own problems. So I'm not enamored and I wouldn't be like, I don't think the best marketing in the world is done by DTCs or that they have a clear path to winning the future. I think there's potential for companies of all different business models. Right. Lots of things I want to unpack here that you just mentioned, but, but one of them is the, is the e-commerce thing. Again, that's a, that's the, uh, the old, um, how are, how are these CPG brands going to do that to people? Aren't people aren't going to sign up for, you know, um, Oreo subscriptions or Ritz, maybe they will, but, um, but all of a sudden in the past year you have, I think you have an, I'm assuming you have a new, a new um, avenue to play in. And that's like trying to use advertising on as e-commerce e has boomed, you, you got an Instacart ad business. Now you obviously have Amazon taken has been exploding target Walmart. All these guys are in the media business. How much of that has changed in the past year for you? And like, what are you guys doing differently maybe in that, in those, in those areas? I, mean, I would say e-commerce has been a journey going back to like 2013 at Mondelez. And I think a lot of great work done early. There was a very early meeting with the U.S. team that put them on that journey where the Amazon team came in and said, you're the number one cookie in the U.S., but you're like the number five cookie on Amazon. And it was <laughs> just like, it caused this like big shifting Whoa. moment. I mean, and sometimes yeah. it just takes one step like that to change the entire trajectory of the company. And uh, I was on the agency side and I was in that meeting. And the moment that happened, you could just see the mindset shift and it put them on a really good trajectory and, and us now us on a good trajectory. I think that you'll see certainly that business is scaling and that behavior is permanent. I think things that worked out well, the team did really important work in price pack architecture. So creating e-packs, so specific packs just for e-commerce that really met the needs of an e-commerce shopper. And mm -hmm. that gave us a huge advantage as we entered the pandemic uh, and has really grown to it. And it's going to be a big part of the future. There's no doubt about that because I don't see it going back. I mean, I look at how my parents have adopted a lot of these behaviors. This is now yeah. normal for them. Right. So it's not going back. Um, I think e-commerce and DTC like are one other business model to our core model, but as I like to say, like if we all sat around and did a brainstorm for Mondelez, like the first thing we would come up with is, hey, let's sell it direct or, hey, let's sell it. Sure. The internet. Let's control right? everything we can. There's, yeah. There's other areas. And again, I, I look at what uh, other companies have done, some experiments, whether 
it's Coca-Cola opening cafes, whether it's PepsiCo doing SodaStream, whether it's Nestle and, and what they've done in the coffee business. I think there's a lot of interesting growth avenues for CPGs that have yet to be tapped. And I, I think that comes just by all of them intentionally thinking about what other business models they want to have. And it's because we know the most successful businesses are in multiple business models. So this is this is inevitably going to happen, and I think we'll stretch far beyond e-commerce and DTC. Very interesting. I want I want to come back to another point you made, and we and you had, you had shared some of the work you've done in this front. This idea of of personalization at scale, which I, that always sounds like that's like a, that's been long been the promise of digital marketing, kind of been elusive. It's hard. It's seemingly hard to achieve outside of. I think that usually people think of retargeting, uh, you know, and, and with with banner ads. But you're, I think you're talking about. Well, actually, exp tell us what you're talking about. I think you're talking about stuff with 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 influencers and digital media and creation. Yeah, so we've been on a big journey on personalization. When I, I was heavily influenced when I was at Twitter, because um, I grew up in the PNG model of you know mass communication, and it works. Mm -hmm. I mean, works, and it's been huge and ingrained on me, and the principles. Uh, learned on the agency side, serving the PMG business have, you know, been lifelong lessons to help, you know, how I think about the business. But when I was at Twitter, I was in charge of yield and I got to look in the auction and you would see who was winning. And it was always these smaller companies who were kicking the butt of a lot bigger corporations. And so I met with a bunch of them and I was like, what's really to it? And they're like, look, when you personalize creative, you get a higher response and also the algorithms reward you uh, with lower cost because if your creative is more relevant, whether you're in Facebook, Google, or Twitter, your cost will be lower. I mean, and the algorithm set up to do that. Uh, and that's public knowledge. It's how the creative score right, works. Right. That's the, that's the secret genius of Google's Yeah. Uh, I mean, you see every day inside Mongolese because we have Oreo and Ritz who will bid on the same audience and Oreo pays less because their creative is historically more relevant. Like there is a cost to less relevant creative. And there's- and, and was, when, What was the secret when you when you were at Twitter and you saw this brand? Was it just they were making a lot more just, ads? They would just out hustle it. I mean, the volume that they would produce and then they would just optimize it. I mean, literally the guy, literally, one guy told me, he goes, we produce 10 static images and two videos for every $10,000 that we spend. And I go, wow, that's a lot. And he goes, every month. And I'm like, you know, like my wow. mind explodes. And, but there was a lesson in that. Like if you looked around the world and you saw what were the fastest growing companies, they did personalization, but CPG was nowhere, not in 2017, no one was doing it. And so when I came to the company, you know, I got hired on a mantra of we will lead in personalized marketing. And that is what will be our growth lever um, to achieve top quartile ROI. You know, four short years later, our ROI has grown by 70%. So we announced that Cagney, you know, our total ROI has grown by 70%. Digital is leading the way for that. And this is a fundamental shift. So we went from being average in food and beverage to now being top quartile in almost every single one of our geographic business units. Digital is driving that. Personalization is driving that. And what we've just saw in that is that ultimately taking one message and sharing it with everyone as efficiently as possible is not the fastest path to growth. And so we started exploring what are all the different segments? And when we first started doing it, we, we called it personalization at scale. And our model was really simple. You know, we'll do, we have this advanced segmentation. We're a CPG company. We know a lot about our consumers. Here are all of our segments. Dear creative agency, create us creative assets that apply to each one of us. And it worked well. We got like a 20, 30% bump. But we, as we ran through that model for two years, we hit a 
roadblock and like squarely in the head where our creative wasn't getting there. And I had a really powerful conversation with David Bosco, who's the account director at VCCP. I took him to dinner. We went to dinner in London. I'm like, why is it not there? Why is it not great? He's like, John, the best work is done by service companies, not product. And I go, why? And I go, what about Nike? And he goes, "Ah, but they're really a product turned into a service. And uh, ultimately we paid to do a project to really invest in how we do creative for personalized and CPG. And the outputs were really amazing. And a lot of what CPG was doing was mirroring. And it was like Getty photo shoots, just switching it out. And that changed how we thought about it. And then a follow-up project with Ogilvy led us to creating what is our personalization model now, which we call empathy at scale. And is really about reorganizing and like fixing some shit I got wrong uh, when we mm-hmm. launched personalization scale. When I launched, I wanted segments up front. I cared a lot about the data, the technology. And ultimately, you get to good results, but not all the way you want to go. When we re-engineered the process and built it back into Mondelez, we put our creative ideation up front. We then think about how we can use empathy patterns to tailor that so we get out of just basic demographic targeting. And the results have been amazing. I mean, our India business and our Milka business and our Cadbury UK business who have adopted this, they're just on fire, uh, absolutely on fire this year. And it's been really inspiring to see how the markets then embrace this and drive this to the next level. So I've, I've come a big journey on personalization. I believe it's what CPGs need to do. It's super hard to get started because it's daunting. It's like we're gonna go from well, it's everything assets. against you. It's everything against what you, what you've done things yeah, for well, the longest it's time. Everything against your mantra. It's you intuitively know it's right. Like intuitively, you know this is correct. But it's like okay, we're gonna go from seven million assets to hundred million assets. How are you gonna afford that? Like how are you gonna manage the media costs? The how production are you timeline, the approvals, all the things yeah, you want. Like, and we have solved for those things. And when we started we didn't have all the answers. Like I remember being, when we launched this in January of 18, uh, I was being asked by the markets, well, how are you going to solve that? I don't know yet. I don't know yet, but we know we have to. And we really, you know, a commitment to my boss, Martin, the CMO, we burned the bridges behind us. And we said, we are doing this. We're burning the bridges. It was at the center of our creative pitch. It was at the heart of our production pitch. Uh, You know, he gave me, who had no experience managing creative agencies, control over the creative agency relationships and the pitch to really drive this model because we just believed in it. And it, it certainly paid out, but it's a journey. And we, and we don't have it all figured out yet. Like, as I think about how do we do retailers? How do we get to better identity? How do we solve for commerce? What are the new business models? How does that all tie together? We're still solving it, but we're, we're well on the journey and we see just the performance in the business. It's super exciting. So can you, can you give me, even if it's hypothetical, like a, a look at what that would, how, how that would, how that plays out. Like let's 2015 versus now, like you might, you know, I don't yeah. know, Trident has five different ads and you show me one because I'm a guy and show someone else one. And now it's 500 ads. What is it? Yeah. Like let's roll back. Let's use cat. I like using chocolate as an example because sure. it's, uh, it's really easy. So when we first started, we would have said chocolate. Great. There are 10 different types of people who eat chocolate right? There's millennial moms, young kids, this, that, other. And, you know, we would come up with, I mean, you can easily come up with 50, 100 segments. I mean, super Mm -hmm. easy to think about all these groups. Like you can write them like this and we would create ads and it would feature the millennial mom, the U S Hispanic mom, the, like ultimately in the same story all the way through. 
That's what it would be. And you'd get 20% lift because ultimately- But, you're, you're but you, you plug that into your media buying and, and like yeah, we'll just bid on- just one, the segments. So if you go into Facebook, you'll see hundreds of segments all the way through. Like we're just right. like, all right, buy this segment, this segment, this segment. Or you buy it in mass and you let the algorithm solve it. But you're literally creating hundred versions of essentially the same app, right? Like pretty simple. Yeah. And where we've gotten to, and that was because the segmentation led the process. If you look at it now and look at like Cadbury work uh, that we've done for Silk or we're doing for CDF, uh, Cadbury Dairy Milk, now it's a lot more about the empathy pattern. So we just did a Valentine's Day uh, work for India and it was beautiful. And they were thinking about, you know, who are the new young lovers, you know what I mean? Or new couples versus the yeah. And so it's more about like your empathy versus your demographic because it's less about what we thought in the beginning our thesis was you needed to see yourself, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm going to respond more to if I see a uh, Caucasian male, uh, 40, doing the exact same thing. And we, we found is, is that's not what's true. That's not what triggered. Like weather is a very easy personalization thing to do or demographics, male, male, female, female. But it doesn't get to the full potential. It like just starts to scratch the surface. And it's when you really get into telling stories that are more empathetic to the person, that's when all of a sudden the response curve shoots through the roof. And uh, so now as we start telling those stories and we found the production models to produce those assets, that's when you're just seeing the response of just the brand equity scores shoot through the roof, the brand response that are, you know, everything from a cost per action to brand equity improves dramatically in that model. So what you're describing with, with oh, 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 it sounds, it sounds, it's given, it's given me agile thinking about it. it, but you know, if you're talking about trying to apply, you know, you're making tons and tons of different creatives, you know, using all these segments, can that be done outside of the walled gardens? Are you really, are you talking about a Facebook, Instagram? No, no, no. Like we do it across the entire meat buy and ultimately we find really great. Uh, so we do it inside the walled gardens, but we also do it outside of it. So I would credit like Globo in Brazil. Like, great example. We're doing some really innovative stuff with them that will launch later this year where they – but I think what's key to our media model is in any given market, we probably work with, like, a core seven partners. Um, so, yeah, you know, from a digital perspective, you're not going to see us working with 100 or 200. It's really focused because – You keep – because what you're doing is, is really complex. You can't – yeah, like Creative agencies, we went from 400 down to, like, a core five, you know, and right. a few locally. So let's say 10 that are really – That's good. interesting. If you want to do something complicated like this, you can't teach this or explain what you want to do to 400 people. Like, right. So same thing on the media side, but, like, Global, Hotstar in India, like, an amazing partner to the Mondelez business. So that's not a walled garden. That is a partner who is absolutely able to create amazing content and help us build that model. So I, I, I think we're finding that in a lot of our e-commerce partnerships. We're really excited to see what we can do with people like GoPuff, like Instacart, and others. Uh, and so it doesn't have to be just the walled garden. We do great work with a lot of different partners. It's just you have to have a focus list. Right. So with that, does that, how much do all the identity changes rock this strategy? If they do, like, you know, cookies going away, IDFA, whatever happens to regulation. I mean, the few thoughts. So like every time one of these things comes up, everyone's like, well, is this going to like totally throw it? I, I ultimately go back to what are my principles, things I believe in. I still believe in the future, commerce, identity, humanity matter, and therefore personalization matters. I think ultimately, as the whole cookie challenges have come up, I think it's good that the world is going to move on from cookies because I don't think anyone can be happy about it. I'm kind of 
famous for saying, I think we're in a purgatory of mediocrity right now. Like the consumer's not happy, advertisers aren't happy. So anyone who wants to hang out here is just way too invested in legacy. Yeah. Um, so I think it's going to progress. I think what's, we're in an interesting time because I think you're seeing a lot of different proposals on how the world can go forward. Google has their point of view. Nielsen has their point of view. Uh, Microsoft has their point of view. Every the trade desk. All these companies. And I think so the trade desk has their point of view. And so ultimately, I think it's good that in this moment we hang out in this that point of divergence uh, and be comfortable with not knowing the path forward. But I believe we will ultimately solve it because ultimately the consumer is the boss here. And the right. consumer is demanding to ask for more personalized advertising. That's not just a mirror of themselves, but really speaks to their empath. And I, I believe we're going to solve it. And when we started this journey, people said, how are you going to go from 7 million assets to hundreds of millions of assets without increasing non-working media? And I said, we'll solve it. And they're like, okay. I don't know. We'll figure it out. Yeah. And DCO. And then DCO has come to maturity and ultimately delivered what we all hoped it would be in a lot of cases. So where there is a will, there is a way, my friend. Um, and it tends to solve itself. Now it may be too early to ask this question, but Facebook and Google—they're and they're obviously—I mean—they're obviously hugely important, but they're—they're they're, they're both going through this self-imposed evolution of sorts that it seems to be driven by regulation and the climate. Where Google is going towards this, we think a cohort model, and Facebook is talking now similar similar ways of of changing the way their ads work, so they don't know as much about individuals. Do you have any sense of whether this is going to make, you know, really upend the dynamics and make them less effective at what you're describing? Is it, will they figure it out? Is it just too early to tell? I think it figures it out. I think ultimately you see commitment to principled principles, you know what I mean? And I think ultimately uh, you see, in those two organizations, you see very principled organizations who will mm -hmm. solve and figure it out. I think it's early. I don't think anyone has the answers. I think everyone is trying to test and learn, but they're all clear on their principles. And so this is going to have to get worked out in the lab and through a series of alphas. And some of them will succeed and some of them will fail. But that is what I think the next 12, you know, 12 to 18 months are all about. Um, yeah. And I think you got to be willing to put in the work. So, you know, I mean, we're aggressively trying to partner with those. And I think we become a, hopefully a really good candidate uh, to partner with those companies because we know them well. We've got a really good stomach uh, for failure on alphas and you have to, uh, having been yeah. on the product side at Twitter, I, I feel it. Uh, Another hard that. thing for CPGs to do, right? Uh, Though that, that the stomach for yeah. failure, you gotta, gotta develop that. You, you have to sign up for some failure and you you make a portfolio choice. Um, but we're going to have to get in and do the real work as an industry. And I think hopefully if nothing else, what I hope is, is in some ways crisis unites the advertising industry. And I think sometimes right now, I think if there's only one good thing that comes out of this entire cookie debacle is it is united advertisers, uh, agencies, and platforms around having to have a conversation that's positive and interesting yeah. about how we solve this versus, you know, you know, auditing agencies, right? I don't trust my agency or what is this? It's, it's Us nice against them. Yeah, yeah, let's try and do each other. strategic conversation. And it's just like, can we do this all the time? Why do we get sidetracked side with all this other crap? Um, right. You know, like when we stay focused on some really good strategic conversations, it's amazing what this industry can do because it's right. That's where the real, the great work comes, the inspiration. How does what you're, what you've described with trying, you know, trying to use empathy as part of you showing people the right messaging and the, the 
you know, the, 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 the scaled relevance thing, can you, can you apply that to influencer marketing? Do you try to do that? Like what's your, how do you guys approach well, that? We, we try to, I mean, I think influencers can play a role in that. And I think it's just, you have to think of them as serving a micro community. You know what I mean? I think when you do mass influencers, that becomes harder. But I think there are some right. influencers that ultimately very much their their content and who they are speaks to one of your empathy patterns. And so I think it's harder if you go out and get someone at mass, but it's a lot easier when you're finding people who very specifically meet different niches of your audience. But the key thing is in that model, and this is, again, it's like things I got wrong that I'm vulnerable about now, you know, like that I can come clean and say I got wrong. Up front, I would have just hired different influencers who match those different audiences in a way. We yeah. Know. I mean, it seems and, obvious, right? Yeah. And, and then away you go. Find like, the millennial yeah. mom who speaks to Cadbury and then do that. And now I've learned to put the idea first. So let's make sure we have the right idea and then let's go find the right talent that goes against it. That's going to help, you know, and the big unlock in this, it was <laughs> one of the great presentations in Ogilvy. They had a slide. They're like, we personalize not to scale the number of our ads, but to scale our empathy. And it was just this really powerful slide. And it wasn't the last slide in the deck. And I just said, stop, that's it. That's really like, my job. I'm going to show you what it is. And I'm like, no, 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 stop right now. I'm like, this is the slide. Like, that is it. It's like, that's your huge idea. Yeah. At scale. And they're like, okay, well, that's nice. Well, can we keep going? I'm like, no, you don't understand. The meeting's over. I'm like, I don't want to see this. <laughs> we I figured it out. Stopped. I've never seen the last 10 slides of that deck. No. And right. I, I literally grabbed the account director because the strategy guy is presenting. He's super passionate. A good friend of mine. I'm like, you've seen the end of this deck. I really love this. Do we keep going right. or should we stop now? He's like, stop now. And I'm like, never send me this. I never want to see the last 10 slides. Right. You've so already won. Over. Don't mess it up. <laughs> the future, yeah. Well, the future could have been like even that much better, but I'm like, we need to stop now. This is so great. I love this. There's so much energy in the room around this. I never want to see the last 10 slides of that deck. That's funny. Um, I want to come back to something you mentioned how you've, you've personally leaned into wanting to figure out machine learning. That's a, that's an often used phrase in marketing that we know that that means a lot of things and maybe is maybe, maybe misused. And, but some of the things you described seem like they don't always lend themselves to that. I guess that's a big fact, big question, but how, how do you, how are you thinking about marketing, marketing and through the machine learning lens and where we should go with it? And then does it apply to this personalization and scale thing you're talking about? Like a few, well, so a few thoughts up front. You use, every marketer uses advanced analytics today, whether they realize it or not, because every time you bid inside an algorithm on one of the platforms, there is machine learning working on the background to optimize. Yeah. It. So that happens, right? So, but here's how I think about it. Look, let's talk about what it takes to make that entire model work. It takes to have big sets of clean data, it takes computing power, which is super cheap and anyone can get. I mean, anyone can get mm -hmm. some servers in Iowa, like we're fine. And then you have to have the sales signal. And this is where your relationships with retailers become super important. And what I get excited about is, you know, if we can create large clean data sets and we've invested a lot into building that for our media data, our consumer data, and now tagging all of those creative assets. And if we can partner with retailers, we can create really fast learning. Then I've neutralized any advantage any DTC has about it. I will know everything a DTC does. It times times a thousand because ultimately uh, I'll have the volume. Because it's a bigger footprint to begin with, with all those retailers. Yeah. And so like we go through painstaking relation. I mean, like literally when we 
traffic and ad placement in Mongolese anywhere in the world. I don't care if you're in the U.S. or you're in Vietnam. There are 40 different variables we build into that taxonomy. Uh, and we do this at a 98% accuracy globally to be able to do a lot of this advanced learning to, to ultimately, so our INA organization can crunch the data and tell us a whole bunch about how we improve and do better. It, it's a big part of where I think the future is going. And why I think it matters is this, is I think more and more retailers are finding new business models that include monetizing their data. And as that evolves, and I think you see some very progressive ones like a Carrefour, Target, Tesco, I mean, these are leading retailers. And as they're leaning into that space, it creates huge opportunities. And if you have not built this organizational structure and muscle, you're going to be behind because it takes 18 months to do it. And it's not fun. I mean, like literally just like the getting the data out the, that you need and putting and it. Just organize taxonomy, like just mapping all the parent childs in your brand. So think about your brands. Like we have how many different SKUs of RITs that exist in the world. Right. And you need to map all that. And Tesco, Tesco yeah. on their end has how many zillion yeah. things in their shelves. Architecture. And the right. more you get it straight, the less match tables you have to bring and the less data that doesn't work, the, the less data engineers you need, the better you're going to be able to deploy your data scientists. So look, I mean, building that asset is super important because ultimately what you, what I fundamentally understand, and it took again, a, a really good education at Twitter is you can't ever catch up to someone who starts running machine learning before you do. You'll just never catch up. Right. Like you can literally watch that wired pong video where you literally see the machine get really good at playing pong. And you see that by its 600 cycle, it is just dominantly better than the human. You can't jump ahead to the system cycle. I will be ahead of every other CPG marketer at this. Clear, right. like super clear. And so the sooner I get to that place of having clean data, having a clear sales signal and running that, you will never catch me. Like you can't catch me. There's no amount of money you can spend to beat me. And so therefore, I think it becomes super important it's a competitive advantage, right? If you are, if you can build a system that is ahead of your, of whoever else you're trying to beat. Yeah, that seems exactly the idea. And I just, again, I think that with evolution of business models and retail, and this is where we started is just, you know, in 2017 in a small conference room, a bunch of us said, we see a day where retailers, you know, part of their revenue growth is monetizing their data assets. Right. And so we need to get organized. And, uh, you know, the chief growth officer gave me a small investment to build uh, that data infrastructure and architecture, and it becomes a real long-term advantage. And so it becomes a priority to have different conversation with retailers. And I think it's the future definition of how you be a really good partner to a retailer. What's the future of a category captain? Like, how do you bring yeah. new and interesting insights to a retailer? I mean, Walmart knows a lot about its customers, but if we don't, and but they count on us to know a lot about the category. And if we can't do this type of work, how are we adding value to them? You know, right? Because they got choices. They can, you know, they can. They have a lot yeah, of other so places they can go. I spend a lot of time on this just because, and I'm 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 a little obsessed because I I just see I, I'm inspired by what L'Oreal and J and J have done. And uh, I'm obsessed about, you know, getting there and beyond in this because I literally just see once someone gets ahead, how do you catch them? Um, and so I, I, I don't see a way. And I, I talk about it all the time. It's just like you get ahead of digital transformation and you stay really disciplined to it. You do a good job of exploring new territories and then exploiting them. Those advantages, I, I don't see how someone catches you. 
Right. And if, if that, if this past year was just you trying to grind out the, the you know, the, the, all the, all the acceleration we've seen and just try, just playing catch up, you're going to be still in the same place. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, I, I think again, sometimes when we talk about data, we get so obsessed with first party data and do I have this consumer's email? Yeah. I'm curious about that, but there's a whole bunch of other first party data assets you have. Think of all the billions, if not trillions of media impressions we run and, if I can append 40 different data you know, signals to each one of those, becomes really powerful in terms of thinking about how we optimize our media. And again, this is the things that we put into play. You don't grow ROI 70% just because you showed up and did things a little bit better than the day right. before. But this is what it takes. This is a reinvention moment. a top-performing growth company. Right. I want to circle back uh, before we close here, John, on, on where we started a little bit. We talked about how you had once been such a – TV, TV centric brand. And now that's really changed. And, but, but I, you still have to have that. I, I imagine you can't totally abandon that reach thing, right? That, that, that tell, how do you, how are you figuring that out in terms of like trying to translate the, trying to find those GRPs if you're still trying to find them on connected television or web video or TikTok? Do you look at things that way? Like, how do, how do you evaluate that shift in dollars? Yeah. I mean, I think that you're seeing, you know, an unprecedented upfront market, right? Unprecedented demand, certainly a yeah. well-documented drop in ratings, and it creates a unique trading environment. Uh, I'm very fortunate. I've got a really good agency. I started my career working for Jonathan Mazinski, and I find that I still call him and his team a lot when I'm in need. And, mm -hmm. uh, I think the big thing as you navigate the world of television is, I think a lot of people think they know it really well, I, I ultimately ask a lot of questions. I think that what I would tell my advice is to everyone is I spend a lot of time asking questions because there's a lot of people, unfortunately, I have mentors like Joe Yuva and Donna Spesh who I call and I just say, oh, help me understand that. But television plays a critical role in driving volume. It plays a critical role in driving certain audiences. And uh, I don't think that you're ever going to find a world where you totally walk away from television. In certain markets, we're like 80% digital, 20% television, like China. But there's an important role to play. And I think it's about storytelling and, and how does that involve. And I, I think you, you see television has creative has gotten to a high level, but every year it still progresses and takes a step. Um, but... I think it's just, there's differences in how you strategically use it. And so we're moving a lot more into connected television. Uh, we see huge opportunities there just to be more strategic in a more fragmented world. How can you be very strategic about what you buy? And I think you have to be choiceful. Um, but yeah. it's, it's certainly very different than when I started in media and I find it's evolving, but I think the same principle applies is if you're going to be curious about what goes on in digital, you should be equally curious about what goes on in television because I think the difference will will kill you if you don't pay attention. Sure. Um, the one thing I wonder, and based on our, our, your conversation, makes me think of this: is when does TV, when when can television apply the the heavy personalization, the machine learning, the segmentation like that you're doing with all your other media? When, is that never going to happen? Are they, well, is that I see some green shoots. I tell you what, I. My eyes, my eyes turn to uh, to Brazil. I, I see big potential for companies like Globo um, to do really innovative things. Those guys are super smart, uh, and I think you'll see that same level of innovation in the U.S. and other markets. Um, it's it's coming, and I, but I think it's just 
it, it requires changing a lot of trading models and there has to be financial incentive for all the players to do so. And so, right. uh, but there's some very big bright spots in that space. And again, I think the difference between people who did what they did last year a little better and people who really sit down and ask the questions and be strategic is big. And uh, I see some big breakthroughs on the horizon. And again, I, I, I'm very positive about what's going on in Brazil at the moment because I, I think we're on the verge of something really cool. So it, it, that's perhaps the fourth time you brought up Brazil. I'm fascinated now. I need, I need to know what's going on in that market. But it sounds well, like that's I hope to come back and be able to show it to you. So yeah. when, when it's out Let's there, go down I, there. I would just tell you, like, it's really interesting. Like, people think that television doesn't move or it's not innovative, and that's ridiculous. Like, I think there's some really innovative work to be done. Like, I get really high on what we're doing in Brazil. I get really high on the work we do in India and branded content. I mean, and that's a market where certainly we're a larger advertiser, top 10 advertiser, but there is amazing work to be done. And if you think television is exactly how it does in spots and dots, I think you're missing out, my friend. Um, yeah. There's really cool, innovative stuff to be done in that space. That is not, that is not just, uh, you know, set it and forget it. I think there's really good work to be done in that space. Well, it's going to be fascinating to see how it evolves and how these other markets um, kind of influence the way the U.S. US market unfolds. John, terrific conversation. We, we covered so much ground here. I really appreciate you taking time out and being here. And thanks so much for a great discussion. Anytime. I look forward to talking with you again, hopefully sharing some of the work we've done. Absolutely. Thank you. Big thanks to my guest this week, Jonathan Halverson, Global Vice President of Consumer Experience at Mondelez, and of course, my partners at AppsFlyer. If you like this episode, please take a moment to rate and leave a review. We have lots more to bring you, so be sure to hit that subscribe button, and we'll see you next time for more on what's next in marketing.